Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. This podcast is brought to you in part by Sovereign Sportsman Solutions. As conservation officers, we know just how important technology is in this day and age. S3 is a cutting-edge and trusted vendor that provides state agencies with licensing, mobile, CRM, marketing, law enforcement, and event management solutions all in one place. They are dedicated to benefiting the resource. So check out the link in the show notes to sign up for their newsletter and get the industry insights, news, and content that can keep you up to date on the tech that helps drive conservation into the future. A Game Warden's children's book, titled A Cowboy in the Woods, is a story of Bobby, a boy who spends the whole summer observing wildlife, writing notes in his notebook, fishing with his dad, and keeping track of all the animals in his neighborhood. While trying to solve a neighborhood mystery, what he discovers is more than just an appreciation for the natural world. The idea for this book came from Wayne Saunders' own childhood experiences, growing up and exploring the woods and streams and lakes and ponds of his native New Hampshire. The love of nature instilled in his childhood led him to a career as a conservation officer. Wayne Saunders is a retired lieutenant conservation officer from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Lindsay Webb is a naturalist, wildlife biologist, and environmental educator. Together, they collaborated with wildlife artist Ashley Mares to produce The Cowboy in the Woods, the story of a boy whose love of nature leads him in unexpected directions. Available at wardenswatch.com and Amazon. Listen to the Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the thin green line and if you are one of those visual people 
like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com and join us. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, episode 65. For this episode of Warden's Watch, we are going to talk about the Colebrook, and sometimes it's coined as the incident, the Colebrook incident, and I'm going to call it the Colebrook murders. To coin it a little bit better, we're going to be able to talk to Richard Carey, the author in that evil day that kind of puts uh, the Colebrook murders all together. I was involved in that. I was shot in the line of duty during that. We'll get into that. And that's what this uh, mini series of podcasts is going to do. But before we do that, I always like to reach out to you guys and just uh, let you know that the way to help us is to give us a good review on the the Apple Podcasts uh, that helps other people know that it's a good podcast and uh, to listen, interesting. Five star rating on that helps us as well as, uh, you know, John. You you have a, a great book, The Hidden War Out. I have a, you know, a kids book out now. So all on wardenswatch.com. So that's pretty pretty cool. Yeah, it's good. And and guys, we do appreciate you know you guys listening in. And we've had a lot of people outside of the traditional fingering line conservation officer. Uh, you know, genre, if you will, tune in and really enjoy uh, both podcasts, known under the mm. Warden's Watch umbrella. And yeah, Wayne, the uh, your children's book is spot on. Um, I've uh, moved a bunch over here in the Northwest and the, the West Coast just yeah. because the cool thing about a children's book is you're paying it forward at an early age. You know, I mean, we all know my story of never, met, you know, having never met a game warden until I was already in college and along the way. 
And uh, I could have saved a lot of time and had the right major in college at first. Had I met a game warden or, or been tutelaged on what they even were as a young boy, because I would have jumped at it. I mean, obviously, it was uh, the calling for both of us. So uh, this, this book is cool. Um, it's going to be a series, right, Wayne? So we're going to have stories as they develop, um, you know, as, uh, as uh, Cowboy in the Woods kind of grows uh, into, well, we won't be a spoiler alert, but I think we know where he's probably going to go. Mm-hmm. And where it, where it goes but it's it's a fun book and yeah you know now that we're you know melded onto warden's watch podcast under one umbrella with the website you can get all of our books there yeah um we've got more my book we've got you know cowboy in the woods series we can throw up some more in the woods we've got um the v-knife signature blades the folders uh the trailblazer and now this fall by christmas we're gonna have all my fixed blades and we're gonna just you know, put thin green line packages for conservation savvy folks up on the website to be available in addition to all this podcast content. So we're grateful guys for you guys tuning in and uh, help us spread the word. Yeah. And I can't help but uh, as I watch the news, John, and see all the stuff going on the border and cartels using this border issue to exploit us. And I always think of your book because the cartels were here growing in your tenure and, and even more so now. So, you know, if you guys haven't read Duran's book, you really need to get it and, and find out what was going on then. And, and then times that by 10, isn't it true, John? I mean, it's, it's, it's even more so now than then. Yeah, Wayne, unfortunately, it's blown up since COVID. And the other thing that's happened just in this last week is I've been hit up by, I think it's five uh, national news sources now for um, feedback on water stealing. And right now, California, you know, my old home state, the Golden State, is coming into uh, one of the most significant droughts we've had. And, you know, I'm, it's kind of deja vu from 2014 to 2016 when Met was brand new, when we were in our state's largest drought in over a century. Um, and now, the, you know, some primarily, primary bandits responsible for stealing all that water, especially in drought conditions, which, you know, just debilitates any state, any waterway, any, uh, you know, wildlife aquifer, et cetera. Um, now we're having another one. So mm. uh, I was speaking with CNN, Washington Post, and various other uh, news channels, not only from the U.S., but giving them insight nas- or internationally because water is so precious overseas. So now we have the drought issue in not only California, but a lot of Western states. We have the cartels on, you know, working on steroids right now and poison cannabis, human trafficking, gun running, synthetic narcotic production. And because COVID's got the nation kind of in crisis, as you and I both know, law enforcement resources are tied up in so many places right now that these wildlife crimes that the cartels are associated with and this water stealing have has very few very little enforcement on it unfortunately so they're taking that as a green light to just rip heavy and we're doing the best we can to hold back the tides so uh, getting that message out right now is huge and uh yeah i feel like i'm <laughs> flashback you know i was training with the the met my met unit and the snipers just last friday in california and mind-blowing to see what they're under i felt yeah. like okay nothing changed yeah. <laughs> it hasn't yeah. slowed down so sadly uh yeah long-windedly um, it is it is a growing problem, and it's something uh, we're going to continue to deal with for many years to come. Richard Carey, uh, who was the author in That Evil Day, who wrote about the Colbrook murders, where I was shot in the line of duty 24 years ago. But those are those are things that really stick with you. I tell you, you know, every day I look in the mirror, I can see my scars from that day, and I, I reflect every day. And this morning, like I told uh, Richard, uh, sitting here reading the the book again, you know, hitting the highlights, you know, brings it all back. 
And I think of, you know, our, our, like our military and post-traumatic stress syndrome, and, and I can certainly understand how that affects mm-hmm. your lives and how, how, we, how we really need to help those people that have those issues. Because I'm sure I get a little, but compared to what other people have seen, you know, talking to a Vietnam vet not too long ago, he's like, I can't unsee the things I saw. And, and with this book, Richard, you know, I, we talked earlier, you put the pieces of the puzzle together because this book... This whole incident affected the north country of New Hampshire, north, north country of Vermont. And it was a puzzle because there were so many scenes, so many, four people murdered, three people shot. You put the pieces of that puzzle together for me and so many because we didn't go ask, hey, what were you doing when, when Carl Drake killed uh, Scott Phillips and Les Lord? We didn't, we didn't do that. So it was, there was a lot of pieces that weren't put together. And frankly, we, you know, a lot of people didn't want to talk about it. So... Those pieces were unhinged until you came up and you did, and I want to compliment you on your investigation uh, for this book because it was, it was great. It, it's what it should have been. You got all your background, you talked to all the people, and then you pieced this into a, a book which uh, helped all of us uh, understand a, a lot of what, what happened, when, where. And I think it was important for the community. It was important for me. And I really appreciate you taking the time, taking the effort, and, and doing this for an incident that I, I don't think it would have ever been done had you not stepped up to the plate and, and done the hard work, the difficult work, the interviews that broke down on. Yeah, it, it, it was a tough thing for you to do, but I'm so happy you did it. It's so important just so we could fit the pieces of the puzzle. So welcome to the Warden's Watch. and. I appreciate you. This is going to be like a four-part series. We're going to start with you so you can frame the whole big thing. John's going to do an interview with me. Uh, Colonel Jordan's going to chime in. And we're going to finish it up, which I think is really important, with Paula Booth, who's my counselor, for the next year and a half to get me back to where I should be so I could become the game warden that I wanted to be. So uh, that that's going to be the series, folks. And uh, But this is the start of it, so you can understand, so you can frame it as well as us. So thank you very much, Richard, and I really appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you, Wayne. And uh, that sounds like a terrific series, and I'm so glad Colonel Jordan mm-hmm. will be involved. He will uh, provide just some uh, terrific input. I'm so glad uh, you approve of the book mm. that came out because it was uh, terrifying to me to take on subject matter as grave as this and uh, not produce something that rang true and seemed in some way helpful and positive to the community and to the people who were involved. So thanks. That's, that's gratifying to hear. And Rich, um, great to have you on the show, like Wayne said before, and get to see you face to face. And I, uh, I read this book late spring this year. You know, I finally got wind of it and doing research as Wayne and I, you know, progressed down the podcast path and decided that it was a good time, you know, to obviously a sensitive time for Wayne, having been nearly killed during this officer-involved shooting incident that hurt so many other people. And I was vaguely aware of it. I had started my my academy training back in 1992. So I was a brand new game warden out on the West Coast. And we got we got a little bit of wind on this, but we didn't get enough. 
you know, that those were the days that officer involved shootings and uh, critical incident, traumatic experiences with game wardens, they really weren't shared on a national network from the standpoint of surviving the unthinkable uh, PTSD issues that come up, what we can do to improve our, our chances and our will to survive. And so, uh, like Wayne said, I was blown away when I read your book earlier this year on the thoroughness of it and the intensity of it and being a lifelong investigator and a detective. If, if you're not writing books, you should be working for us as an investigator in wildlife crimes because <laughs> it was exceptionally done. But I got to ask, first and foremost, this thing, like Wayne said, was so multifaceted. You had tragic loss of some state troopers. You had some innocent civilians killed. You had Wayne shot and, and, and almost killed all around this, you know, this uh, Mr. Draga that has just continually, as your book points out, builds up into the erosion of his just uh, acceptance or, uh, of humanity, if you will, and just the darkness he kind of shed on everybody. So my first question is, what prompted writing this book and how did you come about the idea to bring it together and not only tell the factual stories like an investigation, but backstory the, the town, the community, the mindset, you know, the quiet Northwest mountains, um, what the community is and how close everybody is. And, th and that, that almost makes it even more devastating because everybody is so close, unlike an urban environment where it's tragic when we have these mass shootings, but you don't know the stranger that was shot. Everybody knew each other. They were almost family. So uh, a lot of moving parts for you, but what prompted it if, if we can go into that? Sure. Yeah, I I remember it uh, came when news of this came across the radio. I was driving along uh, the edge of a lake, Squam Lake, thinking, "Oh my God, yeah. uh, this small town, New Hampshire," and just being shocked and astonished. And then you know, it uh, it just kind of went back into a long term memory because at that time I was deep into work on the Philosopher Fish, which is my book about the caviar industry and sturgeon conservation and the law enforcement issues involved there. Um, and, but then you know, when I finished, by the time I'd finished that book, Columbine had happened out in Colorado, where mm -hmm. some twenty people or something were killed, mm -hmm. and Virginia Tech. And by that time, it began to be apparent that we were going to um, suffer a lot more crimes like this. This was going to happen more and more frequently. And also what I noticed with some regret that it was the perpetrator who was some center stage in all of the mm -hmm. stories about these victims. They were so numerous mm -hmm. that they became just listings in a telephone book. Uh, there seemed to be no way to assess the human impact mm. of a crime such as these. But if you look back at the Colebrook incident, the Colebrook murders, you have four people who were murdered there. It's an easier story to tell than a story in which eight or 12 or 20 or 60 were murdered. Right. It's scaled to such a degree that you can get to know each of the victims. There's space for that. Uh, you can get to know the community. There's space for that. It doesn't have to be about the perpetrator. He's got to be one of the major figures, but he doesn't have to be the major figure. Mm -hmm. So it was the uh, scale of the uh, Colbrook story that attracted it to me. And I hadn't done anything like true crime before, but I just had a human curiosity about 
what is it like for a community to go through something like this? Colebrook being something, you know, about the same size as Sandwich, which is where I live in New Hampshire. And I couldn't help wondering what it would be like if something like this happened in Sandwich. So it was a combination of things. It seemed to be an important story. Uh, and it seemed to be a story scaled to such a degree that there was room to describe its human impact. Yeah, no, it's, uh, that's, that's great, Richard. And, and how did you start by going about, you decided to do this book, and, and now how do you engage these people, and, and where did you begin, and how did you start framing the book? Yeah, I, I, I went about it very stupidly. <laughs> what I did is I just wrote cold just knock on the door kind of letters to uh, the survivors of Scott Phillips, Les Lord, Vicki Bunnell, and Dennis Jose, just saying, uh, I, I'd like to do this story and I'd like to have your help. In three of those cases, um, in a polite way, the door was slammed on my face. We really don't want to do this. But at the Bunnell household, uh, the parents of Vicki, especially... Uh, her father, Earl. For one thing, he was a, a great reader. He loved books and admired what books could accomplish. And for a second thing, he was unhappy in one respect about the media coverage of the incident. He thought that too much attention had been paid to Vicky to the, uh, to the extent that uh, the lives and importance of Dennis Scott and Les didn't receive their full due. And of course, the book that I wanted to do would, uh, would have lent equal weight to all of those lives and all of those personalities. So that struck a chord with uh, Earl. He and Irene said, well, maybe let's meet and get to know each other a little better. So I went up to Colebrook and had dinner on a couple of occasions uh, with those folks and talked about what sort of uh, shape the book might be. And they said, well, okay, yeah, we will help you with this. And by that time, they had such stature in the community by the uh, generosity of the way they responded and how they had reached out to other victims and other um, people in the community, that once uh, Earl and Irene were on board with this, then suddenly a number of other people uh, were willing to speak with me as well. It never stopped being a uh, controversial effort because there were two different schools of thought in the community. And one school of thought was, you know, we really need to come to grips with this and have a better understanding of what happened. And another school of thought was, this hurts too much, let's bury it and forget about it forever and never mention it again. There, there were people who I would have liked to have talked to who just, it just talk. remained too painful yeah. for them. And so their input was never harvested. Um, and that's fine. And, and there were people who did speak to me and who just broke down. And it was like going through it all over again. And I was able to gain an understanding I would never have had before about what PTSD was like. It's, it's just there. It just doesn't heal up entirely. Mm -hmm. No, that's a, 
I would say looking at that time frame, and we talked to Paula Booth about, you know, my counselor, and that's how we used to deal with things. We used to bury them and try not to remember them. But I think we're finding out today, releasing those demons is much better than trying to contain them. Um, Yeah. It's, yeah. And that's hard to tell somebody old school, and it was very new and upcoming to actually speak to a counselor as a police officer. I think, uh, you know, when we started, John, we were supposed to suck it up. Um, but my, yeah. my colonel then was very forward thinking and basically, you know, it never made me go, but yeah, he, he, you know how they can make you, make you go and not make you go. It's your decision, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Rich, something that's so cool about you taking on this, you know, big challenge of documenting this incident so thoroughly is just what we were just discussing is the cathartic experience for those involved as victims, victims, families, uh, the law enforcement officers involved like Wayne and your state trooper buddies and anybody else that responded to that as a first responder. But, um, Today, telling the story is so critical because we've got to get it out there. Uh, we got to exercise those demons, as you said, Wayne. And Rich, when you were going through this process, uh, access was certainly an issue, as, as, as you articulated, and, and certainly understandable. But what were some of the other challenges and um, what were some of the roadblocks, you know, as you went through the process of writing this and, you know, having written two lengthy nonfiction books and co-authored another one? That are isolated, you know, to my experiences primarily, but how they affect uh, an, an ecosystem, how they affect other officers. It, it's a tough endeavor to jump into, especially if you're dealing with one incident that has so many moving parts. So what were some other uh, challenges um, getting to the finish line in this thing for you? Yeah. Um, one challenge, I guess, was uh, freedom of information. Uh, mm-hmm. It was very important to access all that was there by way of police reports and documentation on this. So I, I wrote to the uh, attorney general and, and asked for, um, you know, all those reports. And I, I got uh, some prompt and, and, and good help. And I received about a, a thousand pages of documentation, which was just sheer gold, all of it. But uh I remember going down to Fish and Game headquarters to talk to Kevin Jordan mm. down there. He mentioned, you know, you, you, you want to get all these reports and you want to look at those. And I said, yeah, I have. I've got a thousand pages. And he said, oh, well, there's more than that. <laughs> and then he took me down into the archives for Fish and Game and, and showed me all that he had. And, and it was more like 3,000 pages of material. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. And I, you know, and I'm wondering, well, oh my God, I, I've got to see this too. But how how am I going to see that? You know, I I can't live down here for a month right. to go through that. He said, well, just take it with you. We'll just load it into the car. Return it when you're done. That level of informality um, and trust uh, was a godsend because there were 
you know, I don't know why those extra 2,000 pages weren't included in what I received from the Attorney General, but there was material there that was just crucial to understanding what happened in that incident. So certainly, um, you know, the book could not have been what it, what it is without that wonderful gesture on uh, Kevin Jordan's part. I, I was able to keep that material for, I don't know, it, it took 13 years to do the book. So I probably had that material in my closet five or six years before I returned it to a fish and game intact. And then another thing was simply the uh, scale of the pro of, uh, of an incident with four different shooting scenes and, and so many witnesses mm -hmm. and so many people involved immediately or one step removed. Uh, 13 years, and I could have devoted another seven years to really thorough job of, of getting to everybody who sure. was touched in some way by this. Uh, but uh, when Earl Bunnell died in 2013, I believe, uh, without ever having seen the complete manuscript. He saw manuscript pages as I produced them. So he knew what what sort of book was taking shape here, but he never got to see the complete thing. And at that point, I just pulled the plug on my research and said, I've got to go with the information I have here and just get it out. Yeah, that's that's huge, and and I mean, look at the the good it's done. And you would never know there's any holes or gaps, you know, in the book after reading it because it is so comprehensive. But yeah, I didn't I didn't realize the research period had been so long, and that you had to dissect so many documents. And for for um, the agencies to afford that generosity and just give you those sight unseen and and say, hey, go do what you need to do with them. There's no time limit. We don't need to keep records. That's kind of unheard of, but it was it was very fortuitous for this book to even happen because um, it sounds like you would not have got the information otherwise, and that thousand pages would have been pretty lean on some on some some key components to the investigation. Oh yes, indeed. Yeah, it. Um, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Kevin became uh, the MVP of the of the whole research <laughs> effort with that gesture, and he himself offered uh, such a great interview, couple of interviews that were just so humane and, and, and so generous to the uh, perspectives of other people involved in the incident, which I actually found uh, characteristic of uh, law enforcement throughout. There was no sense of uh, competition between agencies. Mm. It was uh, cooperation and uh, mutual respect all, all the way through. And I was really impressed well, first of all, with how well law enforcement on the whole responded throughout that day uh, on a day in which no one could communicate very well with each other, uh, on a day in which a whole lot of other people could have been shot unintentionally by law enforcement, but everybody uh, kept their cool and, and held their fire. And, and then also by the... Um, the courage and the generosity of the interviews that I was granted in the in the aftermath. Uh, these were all smart, eloquent, thoughtful men who brought a whole lot of the uh, human spirit to the work that they did and who kept it intact in the aftermath. Oh, that's great. And so you, you got this singular finish line 13 years later and 
when when the book dropped and it finally was published and it was being distributed, what were some of the initial reactions, not only within the law enforcement circle of all of those involved, Wayne included, and, and everybody in that those those small communities, um, but what about when this thing went wide? You know, what was what was the national feedback and were you getting some surprising comments on maybe the lack of knowledge to this incident? Like all of us say on the West coast, this was a significant incident and it involved one of our, you know, near and dear thin green liners, Wayne being that guy. And yet we heard nothing on it, you know, and maybe that was a time period, but your book comes out almost a decade and a half later and things have changed. Like we said, as far as how much we share information, how much we learn from other officer involved shootings and, 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 and tragic incidences of these mass shootings. What happened with that when it dropped? Tell us that story. Yeah. The, uh, um, the feedback I got from readers was of uh, two different kinds. This is a true crime story, but I, I did not follow the true crime playbook. Right. Um, I gave it a much more uh, literary treatment, focusing a lot on character and history and setting and and all of those elements. And then it was kind of packaged as a true crime product by the publisher uh, because they felt that's where the most sales potential lay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, people who picked it up expecting standard true crime uh, struggled with it a little bit. They found the story to be a little more complicated than they were accustomed to and sometimes got uh, frustrated trying to follow the different narrative lines. Uh, Readers who came to it with a uh, background and interest in literary nonfiction, uh, I got very positive uh, feedback from them and from all of the reviews that uh, came out, uh, those those were all extremely positive. Uh, The feedback I got from the community itself was uh, entirely positive and really gratifying and relieving, thank God. Um, (laughs) There was uh, one uh, from one reader, a guy in the middle of the incident, when he read the book, he sent me a very angry email about one element in it. In 2002, a a book came out by an Arizona newspaper columnist named Vin Suprinowicz. And this was a book called The Ballad of Carl Draga. Mm. And it's all about how Draga was a martyr to a a tyrannical government and to uh, um, trigger happy law enforcement and government weasels who are trying to take away people's sovereign rights. I uh, quoted several times from that book just to um, demonstrate this uh, other point of view, which I think spoke for itself in terms of how toxic and wrongheaded it was. This was by a guy who never visited Colebrook and who never talked to any of the witnesses or survivors and who never read any of the police reports. He just had a certain agenda he wanted sure. to advance with this story. So anyway, this this reader was angry that I had given any sort of um, on-air time to that sort of perspective. But you know, we agreed to disagree about that. I, I, I think it was important to show that just so that we're all aware 
that there is that perspective out there that someone can look at this story and feel that uh, Pearl Carl Drago was the victim here and not the four people that he murdered. Yeah, it's uh, we see a lot of that these days. Um, when you have that template of somebody that doesn't act so heinous or a group of people that do an act so heinous and uh, that, that is, you know, it ebbs and flows, especially in, you know, some of these more, I don't know, I'm not going to say maybe militants, the wrong word, maybe uh, prepper because Wayne and I have done a lot on the thin green line with preparedness and uh, you know, this, this kind of thing. But the bottom line is innocent people were killed innocent people were threatened law enforcement that had no connection with this guy bottom line Wayne being you know one of those guys you know were impacted severely uh, fatally in in some cases and I want to empathize with you author to author of nonfiction true crime type books I went into the same what what I loved about your book and I want to highlight what what we talked about in the beginning is the characterization and building up who these folks were in the community even when I started to read it I kind of went wow, uh, you know, this is not a typical true crime book. This is not the investigation you must have done for this. This is not playing out like building up the facts, getting to the shootouts, getting to the aftermath, getting to the responding agencies, how the community, it, it was a real, it was a breath of fresh air for me because I too, in War in the Woods and Hidden War, really overemphasized the characters and details of people, whether they be teammates on the tactical team, whether they be the public, whether they be wildlife, whatever the case may be. And as an example, uh, Hidden War was about 70 pages longer than the final product the public sees now because I, I went crazy on character and my editors, you know, they said, hey, we love it all, but man, we got to get to the meat, man. We got to get to the meat, you know, and I'm sure I'm sure you've heard that. Uh, but I, I think I think true crime lacks that. And I know I'm going off tangent from the incident itself, but the bottom line that makes a good true crime book so good is emphasizing everybody involved, getting into the mindset of Drega, getting into the mindset of those officers, Wayne, getting into the mindset of, of Bonnie and Earl and everybody else in that community. Um, it just makes it so much more real. And I think we as readers can paint that individual picture we do in our heads, not seeing this on a TV screen, especially, but we can empathize with the situation with the people so much better when it's there. And I wish we'd see more of it. So uh, kudos to that part of the book, but it was not traditional. And I, I, uh, I feel your pain a little bit. I had some editor chops that I, I know had to happen, but I'll always have those drafts of those chapters, you know, always saved and go, Hey, if it ever comes back and we need to expand, you got to have that, you know, it just, it just makes it real. Brings yeah. And so, yeah, good. Nice work there. Thank you. Yeah, and as long as In the Evil Day is, it was, you know, it's about 300 pages longer in the first draft. I'll bet. Yeah, I hear you, for sure. Wow. And Drager was kind of the first, I always, when I refer to him, it's the the free stater, the sovereign citizen type of person. And he was kind of the first one to, to make a, interna- a national, international statement, so to speak. And I think that's why those other people gravitate towards him yeah and ironically he was not himself a mem you know that we know of anyway not himself a member of any uh, militia or organized uh, political group that way uh, he was pretty much a lone wolf but at uh, some point he began uh, signing his correspondence a uh, sovereign citizen 
I think there were certain flirtations there between him and some paramilitary groups in the North Country. And then in 1997, yeah, this this was uh, big news, you know, national news. This was international news. It, it went all over the world uh, because this was just something that didn't happen much often in America then, least of all in rural New Hampshire. Right. So, yeah, it's in the aftermath that uh, Draga has become a public figure to these uh, groups out there on the fringe. And, you know, I I still give uh, talks on this book and on this incident to various libraries and, and historical societies. And I'm still kind of doing the math on shooting incidents like this. And, uh-huh. you know, so if you want to define a mass shooting incident as something in which four or more people are killed or wounded, as of June 21st this year, there were 293 of the, such incidents wow. in the nation. And just on that weekend of June 21st, there were 10 on that weekend. So, you know, we we hear about these frequently on the news, but we have reached a point where there isn't near enough room for all of them. Uh, Something like 90, 95 percent, never a ripple anymore in the uh, in the media world because there's just too many. Well, and that that figure's mind blowing, Rich. Honestly, you know, I mean, I follow this. Wayne follows this. We see this on the news. I, I hear about it, you know, happening in my old agency, and you know, where uh, I hear about it happening with allied agencies all over the U.S. Um, but we don't really count the number and document it that way. And two two ninety three sounds higher than I would have guessed by at least double with what we've been exposed to, even on the inside track. So that's uh, that's not only alarming. But it definitely shows that this is a pervasive problem nationally and something we got to, you know, we got to continue to try to remedy and, and have the support networks in, in and when they happen uh, around everything from PTSD to victim support to active shooter allied agency response. I know from a law enforcement training standpoint, especially on the tactical side where I've been involved in. The biggest thing I was facing other than small unit operations against the cartels was active shooter engagements and training not only to a certain tactical level as a game warden agency, but integrating with other uh, urban law enforcement teams, rural law enforcement teams at the, at the local level, state and federal, knowing that when these things happen, we could be anywhere in the country and all of a sudden we're all going to be pulled together into this melting pot and we could be from 20 different agencies and let's just hope we have similar training and we have the mindset to go in and do what we need to do when that critical time consideration is such a such an issue that we can't hesitate. We got to go in and stop the threat and, and minimize the casualties, if you will. And it's uh, it's probably one of the biggest challenges for law enforcement today because it's one of the most dangerous things we do um, that we don't really plan for in our day to day or we're not really doing day to day operationally within our agencies, but it's become a huge, huge issue. Fortunately, some of the smaller agencies aren't quite trained to that level that they should be um, to be effective and to be safe if they respond to one of these. So numbers like that, I think, wake up anybody on the administrative side that these are happening everywhere. And you just said it, 10 happened on the very weekend on the 21st of June and around that. And that's, that's mind blowing. So we kind of need to be prepared for that and uh, good information to have. Yeah. Uh, Richard, could you go through the whole incident? Cause I, when we 
when we were going to focus on the game warden incident, but I like everybody to go into the continuing podcast, knowing actually what happened in a general type of thing from from the beginning through the end. Not in so much detail as you certainly as your book goes into, or that we'll yeah, go. But a good overview, yeah, yeah, certainly a good overview. Yeah, and and we're going to go deep into my incident, and then uh, you know Colonel Jordan, and uh, as well as my counselor, which I think is is really key and important to wrapping up an incident like this, that to help others that have a similar incident or just a, a critical incident in their family and know how to deal with things. But uh, just to give our listeners to to know what everything is mm-hmm. without grabbing your book and doing the read, but maybe uh, yeah get the book after you hear this podcast so you can get those details into it as well. Sure. Yeah. So, okay. Five minute version of the train of events, something like that. Then. Yeah. Absolutely. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, Carl Draga, he is a, uh, he lives in central New Hampshire, but he buys a, a cabin for retirement on in the North country on the banks of the Connecticut river. And he gets into a, uh, a dispute with the local zoning authorities about uh, about the construction of a barn on that, and uh, this and this is 1972, and this escalates over 25 years um, into a series of disputes between Draga and local uh, government, Draga and state government agencies, Draga and local law enforcement, Draga versus his contractors, Draga versus his neighbors. He just becomes increasingly angry and confrontational about everything over time. And one day in um, August 19th, 1997, uh, shortly after having made, having threatened the life of uh, Vicki Bunnell, who was a uh, small town lawyer, a selectman on, uh, in the town of Columbia. And Vicky was the person who had called the police and had Draga arrested on two incidents that became where Draga threatened to become violent. And uh, so Draga had a particular hostility towards Vicky, even though it'd been years since she was on the board of selectmen. Anyway, she, he had made this threat so on this afternoon, State Trooper Scott Phillips decides to pull Draga over and talk about that threat he had made against Vicky. Draga pulls into a supermarket north of Colebrook. He steps out of the pickup with an AR-15 rifle and before any conversation opens fire on Scott. Uh, Scott flees into returning fire. Scott flees into high grass on the edge of the parking lot, just as Les Lord, another state trooper called for backup, arrives, turns the rifle on on Les's cruiser and uh, kills Les almost instantly. Then he follows, um, finds where Scott is in the high grass. Scott is out of ammunition, unable to reload. He uh, executes Scott climbs into Scott's cruiser and leaves the parking lot. A couple of municipal officers have arrived by then, but they didn't know it was a shooting incident or Mm. no, they didn't know what kind of incident it was. They're outgunned and are unable to approach Draga, unable to contain him in the parking lot. Draga drives to the News and Sentinel newspaper building in in downtown Sentinel where Vicki Bunnell has her office. 
Vicky sees Draga climb out of the cruiser with his rifle. She calls out a warning. Everybody runs out of the newspaper office out the back door. Uh, someone, as a precaution, had locked the front door of the building. So Draga goes around to the back and sees people fleeing out the back just as he arrives at the parking lot. He sights on Vicky and guns her down. Dennis Jose, the newspaper editor, who's coming out the back door as that happens, he is a lifelong pacifist, conscientious objector during the Vietnam War, but he can't stand this, and he tackles Draga, attempts to take the rightful away from him. Uh, he loses that struggle. Draga stands over him, fires several uh, rounds into Dennis, and he dies later at the Upper Connecticut Valley Hospital. Draga returns to his cruiser and drives south to Columbia to his cabin, uh, dons a ballistics vest, loads a lot of ammunition into the cruiser, shaves his beard off, attempts to uh, burn down the barn. He does succeed in burning down, setting fire to his cabin. Wow. Uh, he drives down Route 3 into... Uh, past Columbia and into Stratford, New Hampshire, where there is a bridge into Vermont, crosses that bridge. It is at that point that a young fish and game officer, Wayne Saunders, finds him. As far as Wayne knows, this is a stolen cruiser incident. He uh, has no word that there's been any gunfire. So Wayne puts on his blue lights, pursues across the bridge into Vermont, starts to follow down Route 202 under a railroad trestle, but notices that the cruiser is not, he doesn't see the cruiser on the other side of the trestle. In fact, Drake has pulled off to the side, jumps out from behind the trestle, uh, fires a number of rounds into Wayne's cruiser. And the only reason Wayne is on this podcast is because of the badge he was wearing that day, which deflects one of uh, Draga's bullets into his arms, and he nearly dies from the damage inflicted by that. Draga continues down Route 202 uh, and disappears off into a side road, sets up an ambush there. Uh, the cruiser is eventually located, a detachment sent in to take charge of the cruiser, which has apparently been abandoned, but in fact, it's an ambush. Six men would have died there had not a dog called out a uh, warning. Two were wounded in the fire from up the slope, um, but uh, eventually Draga was uh, killed in the ensuing shootout. Two officers were badly wounded, but there were no subsequent deaths. Meanwhile, back at the News and Sentinel, those survivors there are uh, getting the newspaper out onto the uh, sidewalk the next day, giving us the first account of this incident. Wow. Thank you. That's a lot and a little, man, before we go into details on the next interviews. That was, uh, <laughs> that was heartbreaking, powerful, and, and concise. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was uh, mm. definitely, and you know, for the listeners to listen. And I thought about how to do a podcast to include all of those incidents. And I, like you said, there was so much that where do you start and where do you end and who do you talk to? And, you know, it was kind of mind boggling for me. So I'm like, I'll, I'll focus on me, but I, I, we got to let our listeners know what happened. 
for the totality. And that's when it came to mind uh, in that evil day does exactly like that. It, it put all the pieces of the puzzle together for me and for a lot of people I know that, you know, when they read the book, they were like, oh, I didn't know that happened. Oh, I didn't know that happened. Because everybody almost in the North Country for sure knows where they were that day. It's almost like a 9-11 incident where you, yeah. you remember where you yeah. were at in 9-11. For the North Country, yeah. that moment, they remember. Oh, New Hampshire. I'd say that's true all through New Hampshire. I'd go all over the state and people would remember where they were when they heard about this. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, so it was that 9-11 moment for for us, and and that's how I can describe it, because people always would come up to me and tell me what was going on when they heard it or that day or, and they could relate to it. And and some people, uh, you know, it was just amazing where they were in proximity to it, that they saw the cruiser, things like that uh, when when it was stolen. And uh, yeah. And and the the lack of uh, communication that day, we're going to talk about that uh, in mine, but, and then the the good things that came out of it, because I always like to focus on good things that actually came out with the the better communications, the the better weapons that we were able to get because of that incident. Um, so, yeah, it, it, there's always good that comes out of bad. I just, uh, it, it is tough to lose friends. Mm. Yeah, and speaking of the good, I, I knew going in that this was going to be a sad, sad story. Um, but I could not anticipate all of the uplift and inspiration I would find by mm. discovering with how much courage and how much grace uh, people responded um, who, you know, all of a sudden gunfire breaks out and they find themselves in a war zone. Mm. So, you know, just not just the law enforcement people, but bystanders mm. and EMTs and the various ways people rush to help each other and uh, to protect each other and in the aftermath to support each other. Um, it uh, restores a lot of your faith in human nature and lifts it higher. No. Yeah, yeah, it, it really does, and um, especially in these these darker incidents, this one, you know, on the forefront. And did you notice, Rich and Wayne? This is a question, you know, really for for any of you guys involved. That I would imagine there was a, a an even an even tighter knit bond within the community especially where the incidents were, were taking place many, many years later. I, I know, I mean, there's the, always the tragedy. I think about when my partner warden was shot in 05 um, and almost died and luckily survived that in, on, a, on a cartel uh, cannabis raid, Rich, that was my first shooting incident of about six. And I remember <laughs> going through that day, as I'm sure Wayne can attest of uh, not knowing if he was going to survive and, and the officers we did lose and the, and the civilians we lost during this particular situation. And you feel kind of hopeless, definitely, um, and especially in the shock of the immediacy of it and the aftermath is, where do we go next? 
you know, especially as a small community, how do we get past this? But time does heal certainly to a large extent over, you know, over a duration, but also just the bonds of people coming together that really help save lives that day. Uh, you talk about, you know, your conscientious objector in, in the back of the print and coming out of the back and at least tried doesn't always turn out right. I think of flight 93 during 9-11 and that group of passengers that said, we're not having it. We know we're not going to make it, but we're not going to take out more lives on the ground. That to me, guys, is one of the most inspiring things about the human condition, about the selflessness we can find in a pretty selfish world and willing to lay our lives on the line and know we're going to lose our lives, but other people might live that we don't even know. And it's not always happening from first responders and sheepdogs in our world of professionalism where we're geared to do that. This is coming from your everyday Joe Blow citizen that hasn't chosen this line of work, but they just have that protective instinct for their community. And you said it well, Rich, that's, that's the hope we have, you know, and I think your book and we get to the characterization of really going into who the victims were, paint that picture of hope. And we need to have more stories like this and and moving forward. I know we, of of course, we got to talk about where people can get your book, um, uh, you know, any any type of blogs on it, how they can comment on it. Cause this is, uh, it's an incident that's historically dated a little bit, certainly. But like you said, it's one of the very first, if not the first, shootings of this type that, you know, just, just rocked a small rural community that so many of us live in. Yeah, Rich, I, I think John described Dennis Jose to a T. He, he was the hero. Uh, he, you know, he, he didn't get paid to, to put a gun on, to put a badge on. In some way, we accept that we could be hurt in the line of duty, killed in the line of duty, by taking that oath. Vicky Bunnell didn't take that. Uh, Dennis Jose, like you said, didn't take that. But he, he was the ultimate hero that day. The guy that John just described. The guy that wasn't going to take it, you know. And a pacifist during the Vietnam War. It, it broke him for him to be a hero that day. I think we all wish that, you know, he was the, 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 the winner of that fight uh, for sure. But I always, I always think when I talk about this incident Dennis Jose was a hero in every which way and that's what I see out of that because he was never asked to do that he he did it especially with his background to 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 rise to the occasion to to do what he could uh is just boy you just described that John you described Dennis Jose uh, talking about those people I had to yeah say and it, it just it and you know I look at it and it's when you guys are so close to it, it's hard to, you know, necessarily see it. And I'm looking at this as an outsider coming in, obviously sharing a great profession that we were blessed to share, Wayne, and, mm. and uh, Rich to, to write stories that, you know, are nonfiction and might help somebody that uh, aren't always pretty. You know, you wrote a heck of a one and, and I've had the privilege of doing a couple myself on our experiences. But the bottom line is that's America to me is what Dennis did. It really is. And this was way before 9-11, but the incident we just talked about on Flight 93 was something that I think started to get in our nation's mind of, we're not taking it, you know? And we can't always, we can't always rely on first responders and law enforcement, given the small percentage of numbers, to save the day when the proverbial, you know, crap hits the fan. We just can't. We have to step up. 
and we have to do those hard calls and we can't just be victims and sit back and be part of the casualty list. And I think, you know, maybe take a look, take some fire away from these mass shooting suspects that go out with a weapon and do something heinous and think that they're just going to, you know, get away with it necessarily before law enforcement shows up. And certainly uh, looking at today's world and COVID and everything is self sustenance and having to look after ourselves when a 911 call might not lead to any help for hours, if not at all, even in the biggest cities where crimes are going crazy. And Rich, I'm sure you can attest to this with all the stuff, all the knowledge and data you're still getting on these type of incidents that we can't always rely on law enforcement. And it's, it's the everyday citizen hero that can make or break the difference like Dennis did that day for sure. Yeah. And you know, he was a, uh, he was in his early 50s, but very fit. He, he, he might have won that battle, but uh, he had uh, been up on his roof a few days of, before and taken a tumble off of it and, oh, and, yeah. and had hurt his back. And he was limping badly yeah. that day. But uh, even with that injury, yeah, he, he, he threw himself into that. Uh-huh. And you, you just have to stand in awe. Yeah, another Definitely. fact I didn't know, Rich, was that he had taken a tumble and, you know, John says, you know, from the outside looking in, and that's the way you started, but you became an insider. Uh, you, you actually, yeah. you know, peeled back the layers of the onion and became became emotionally attached, uh, f- felt their pain. And uh, I think John pointed that out when he said, from an outsider looking in. And then I just realized that you were an outsider looking in, but you became an insider in a big way. And this, this incident affects you as much as it does me. Yeah, I, you know, I've read about war correspondents uh, who suffer from PTSD, Mm -hmm. even though, you know, they're not handling weapons or doing and it's, you know, and and they may not even have been in combat, but it's just the stories they hear um, and that they relay. And yeah, I I, I can see how that happens. I, I feel like Scott and Les were brothers. Yeah. And that Vicky was a sister and that Dennis uh, was a brother. And I just uh, grieve these people. And yeah, when I go out and, and, uh, and give the talks that I still give on this incident, uh, the, the tears are still there. Um, yeah. I have a hard time getting through sometimes. Yeah, I, I can imagine, Rich. And it really comes out to those, you know, we talk about the character descriptions. We, we can tell how close you were to everybody involved in this incident, just in how you describe the personal side of them that you wouldn't normally get in an investigation. And when you're just talking about the nuts and bolts of what went down and, and who was lost and who survived and what the aftermath was. So tough run for you, buddy. Uh, and we, we feel for you for sure of being mm. part of it. Yeah, but a, a hero in the same thing to, 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 to dive into this and to write this, knowing that, you know, you were going to get both good and bad uh, impact and uh, being a friend with Earl and Earl, I'm sure, encouraging you along the way to write this book when you had your doubts. Uh, you know, the, the cover of it is actually my shooting incident, the scene at my shooting incident, which uh, is uh, <laughs> every time I look at it, I brought my son there to show him. I used to bring trainees there and, and show them and, mm-hmm. and talk it through. The only time I had a really hard time talking about the incident was the International Wildlife Crime Stoppers uh, Conference. And I, I broke down then. And I think it's because I hadn't talked about it in a while. I hadn't relieved mm-hmm. that, 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 that stress. Um, you know, in a while, and it really, it, it ain't, you know, it was been boiling up inside, and it came out, it was tough, but um, 
I think it's it's good for me to talk about it. It's it's good to be talked about, I believe. And then I, I look at the the day that they put up uh, the little flags there that had the the numbers of how many rounds were on the ground there. My, my badge actually, the center of my badge got knocked off uh, that day, and they didn't figure out why the seal of New Hampshire was there, but it was the center of my badge. I had been knocked off ah. and was underneath there. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, just reading it, you know, it was very game warden heavy. There was a, a field day, and we'll get into this, John. But uh, one of the other first responsors was a Vermont game warden. And uh, just to have him look at my cruiser there and say uh, he didn't think I made it, just looking at the cruiser and the amount of rounds that it took I and know, where they were taken. hammered. Yeah, how extensive the attack had been, man. And God, very blessed. Mm. I'm glad you're here, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> After diving into this and seeing the extent of it. But Rich, um, we're promoting your book because this is a story that has to get told. It is timeless. Um, I, I was, like I said, I was blown away with the, the comprehensiveness of it. Where can people find it and how can they reach out to you for questions, for uh, you know, speaking engagements, um, et cetera? How can we reach you and get, get a hold of that book? Sure. Uh, you can reach me through my website www.richardadamscarry.com. Okay. And I also have a website for the book uh, in the in in the com. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so either of those will work, and and the book can be obtained from Amazon or, or from any uh, online retailer. And but I particularly encourage you to go to your local bookstore. And if it's not there in the shelves, simply ask them to order it. And uh, that will help to uh, support local booksellers. And it's uh, available at many libraries as well. Yeah, that would be great. I, uh, I actually got it on Amazon as a Kindle because I was doing so much traveling and teaching myself and I dissected at that. But I need to, I need to get a, I'd be honored to have a signed hard copy of that book from you. And uh, certainly if you like, uh, send over a copy. I'll send you some signed copies of mine because uh, this one's a special one, man. And now that we've been face to face and I've seen another active, active, uh, you know, hero in the story. And thank you so much for putting the story out. Great book. And uh, we highly recommend it. Yeah. And thank I w- you, John. I, I'm fascinated to, uh, to, to see your work as well. So yeah, let, let's do that swap. That would be great. Well, you bet. I'll reach out to you after and we'll make it happen. And thanks so much. I got one thank final, you. final question for you, Richard. The, the name of the book, how'd that come about? Cause I know we yeah, all, great put, question. we all put a lot of work into our names on our book. At least John, I know has, uh, I just came out with a children's book. Uh, so yeah, so that's names of books are really important and usually have a backstory. Yeah. Well, the original title for it was their town, their town. uh, a, um, a purposeful allusion to our town, which is another story, uh, about the effects of tragedy in a small New Hampshire town. So I liked making that connection. Uh, my publisher didn't think there was enough sizzle to that. <laughs> so we chose uh, In the Evil Day, finally, which uh, comes from the Bible. And uh, it's a passage from uh, St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it's uh, about the importance of uh being on your guard because at any moment in the evil day, uh, the principalities that support evil shall beset you. And that 
and that passage was quoted uh, by the pastor of the um, Congregational Church in Colebrook uh, during uh, Vicky's uh, memorial service mm -hmm. on the weekend uh, after the shootings. So I felt it was a nice uh, apt quotation that would work well as the title. Mm. Yeah, it, it's a great title. It grips you, and and the depth of it, I think, especially spiritually for all of us, is is spot on. Great choice. No, thank you so much, Richard, for for joining us and talking about this and uh, starting our uh, our four part series because I think it's going to be informative and engaging and let people know. Uh, I think a lot of us that get in shooting incidents or critical incidents, we don't we don't like people to forget because we never do. So it, yeah. it's thank you so much. Thank you. So glad you're doing this. Yep. Thanks, Rich. It's been a real honor and a pleasure to meet you and see you firsthand and really enjoyed the book. And, and thanks for all you're doing. Hope to talk again. Thank you, John. And I'm honored as well. Look forward to hearing from you. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other game wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.